God bless and greetings in the name of Jesus Christ. Take your Bibles and go to Job chapter 40 and then in verse 5. Once I have spoken, but I will not answer. Yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. Job had spoken once, yea, more than once, in an insulting manner, and now he sees his spiritual error. Afraid that he might sin again, he refuses to speak any more, absent confession of his own unworthiness. Job's words and thoughts had gotten him in trouble with the Lord, and now he has gained sufficient wisdom to hold his peace and quietly humble himself to the Lord's correction. No longer would he speak of the perceived errors of God's ways. Instead, it would be contained to his own unworthiness. Content in being contrite in God's sight, he rejected saying anything that could tempt him to be lifted up with pride again. It is in humility that men find God and become able to learn more about Him. Whereas in human pride, the Lord will not be found at all. Psalm 25, 9, The meek will He guide in judgment, and the meek will He teach His way. Barnes on Job 45, Once I have spoken, that is, in vindicating myself, He had once spoken of God in an irreverent and improper manner, and now he saw it. But I will not answer. I will not now answer, as I had expressed the wish to do. Job now saw that he had spoken in an improper manner, and he says that he will not repeat what he had said. Yea, twice. He had not only offended once, as if in a thoughtless and hasty manner, but he had repeated it, showing deliberation, and thus aggravating his guilt. When a man is brought to a willingness to confess that he has done wrong once, he will be very likely to see that he has been guilty of more than one offense. One sin will draw on the remembrance of another, and the gate once opened, a flood of sins will rush to recollection. Verse 6 now. Then answered the Lord unto Job, out of the whirlwind, and said, After Job's confession of being vile and his want to speak no more, the Lord continues his correction, teaching us that it is God and not man who determines the degree of both repentance and the length of correction needed before he is able to cleanse men from sin. Since the Lord leaves nothing to man, nor will he allow men to set their own standards for what he deems is insufficient reproof for sin. Even as also a full confession for sin can only come when there is first full sight and understanding of the sin. Understandably, any partial repentance by man will certainly fail to achieve full forgiveness from the Lord. Verse 7 now. Gird up thy loins now like a man. I will demand of thee and declare thou unto me. The NIV of this verse Brace yourself like a man, I will question you, and you shall answer me. And the New Living Translation, Brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. Every man will have to stand and give account of himself before God, as Job needed to do here. Human cowardice will not be tolerated nor will any be able to plead weakness in order to escape either God's correction or potential judgment for their sin. Like with Adam and Eve, no matter what is put on, 
nor the efforts made to hide. A full account for transgressing God's word must be given. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that every one may receive the things done in his body, according to that he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Ellicott on this verse, that everyone may receive the things done in his body. It would have seemed almost impossible, but for the perverse ingenuity of the system builders of theology, to evade the force of this unqualified assertion of the working of the universal law of retribution. No formula of justification by faith, or imputed righteousness, or pardon sealed in the blood of Christ, or priestly absolution, is permitted by St. Paul to mingle with his expectations of that great day as revealing the secrets of men's hearts, awarding to each man according to his works. Whatsoever man soweth, that shall he also reap, Galatians 6-7, was to him an eternal and unchanging law, end quote. It is foolish for men to hope that how they have lived and what they have both thought and said against God shall not be brought to light. Verse 8 now. Wilt thou also disannul my judgment? This is the Lord speaking to Job. Wilt thou condemn me that thou mayest be righteous? The NIV on this verse. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? The NLT on this verse. Will you discredit my justice and condemn me just to prove you are right? Here we have the source of all human reproach and condemnation of God. It is because men desire to justify themselves. For none can speak against God's government unless it is foremost themselves they seek to justify. Hence, at the core of all condemnation of God is men attempting to assert that it is they who are righteous and not God. As none shall bring claims against the Lord, unless first they are seeking to both exalt and justify themselves. By also bringing into question God's judgments, sinners imply that God is the sinner and that they are not. Thus, it is easy to see why God deals so harshly with human self-righteousness, simply because it is the seed of all true rebellion. Ultimately, whatever God either allows or permits is just, and to question this is to discredit and to count as unjust God himself. Job had, by his complaining and murmuring, put a blotch and smear on God's justice, implying that he had not done anything to deserve the tragedies in his life. By this, blame was placed upon the Lord, as if Job had not sinned, nor was his family worthy of their end. Yet all, regardless of who they are, Reap as they have sown, and none reap as they have not. Job 34, 11. For the work of man shall he render unto him, and cause every man to find according to his ways. What also can be seen is that Job's erring religion had so infected his heart that he believed it was he and not God who should determine what was fair in life, teaching us that false religion can be as dangerous as witchcraft, if instead of humbling a man, it gives him what he thinks is sufficient grounds to condemn God and his judgments on the earth. If we recall the history of the book, 
we will remember that Job had early in chapter 1 brought sacrifices and offerings to God for the possible sins of his children. Yet, if we are to believe God's word, true sacrifices, like that which Job was presenting for his children, must first contain a broken spirit in order that God may receive them as worthy of himself. Psalm 51, 17, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O God, thou will not despise. If there is not a truly humble spirit that justifies God and condemns self, then whatever is brought to the Lord will be found unworthy. How important is this spiritual truth concerning all religious action that for men's lives and the actions they perform to be treasured by the Lord, there must be a broken and contrite spirit evident in the worshipers. Thus, it is not enough to go through religious movement if the heart has not been sufficiently humbled to exalt God and debase self. The Cambridge Bible on this verse, the sacrifices of God such as he desires and approves. A broken spirit and a contrite heart are those in which sorrow and affliction have done their work, and the obstinacy of pride has been replaced by the humility of penitence. End quote. What Job could not see until thoroughly enlightened by the Lord was that the sin he thought his children might have committed, he himself ultimately became guilty of. In the end, then, Job's trials were purposed to produce a broken spirit, which alone would make the offerings he presented to God acceptable. Observe also that trials have as their main objective the purification of religion, understanding as well that if any man truly desires to please the Lord, then God shall have to undertake and allow certain things in his life whereby his religion can be sufficiently cleansed to be found acceptable by God. And though this journey will often prove painful, it will in the end manifest itself very profitable in gaining a worship God accepts. It is God who must refine men for a proper worship of himself. To do this, men must be properly humbled so that previous self-righteousness may be replaced by the humble confession that they are, at their very core, sinners, and that God in all his ways is righteous. Verse 9 now. Hast thou an arm like God, or canst thou thunder with a voice like him? The arm, symbolic of strength, is meant to show Job that his strength cannot be compared to God's. When the scriptures refer to the arm and hand of God, it is to instruct men that God has the ability to accomplish things in their lives that they themselves have not. For the believer, it is God's hand and the Lord's mighty arm that gains victory in his life. Because without God's strength being exhibited in the Christian's life, there would be absolutely no chance of victory at all. This includes victory over death and sin, as well as all other earthly overcomings. Psalm 98.1 O sing unto the Lord a new song, for he hath done marvelous things. His right hand and his holy arm hath gotten him the victory. Job had not such an arm as God. Therefore, he should not think that through his own wisdom or strength, he could either understand God's purposes for his life or be delivered from his affliction. Verse 10 now. 
Deck thyself, and again, these are the Lord's words to Job. Deck thyself now with majesty and excellency, and array thyself with glory and beauty. It is impossible for men, especially sinful men, to replicate and or adorn themselves in any true heavenly glory. Human pride, therefore, no matter how deep and expansive it is in the soul, can do nothing to reproduce the glory that is God's alone. It will prove insurmountable for any to capture even an ounce of celestial glory, unless by the grace of God this glory is given through Christ. Since there is no natural light nor no moral quality in men that would allow them to clothe themselves with the glory, splendor, and majesty that is God's alone. Because also men lack this heavenly glory and are merely corrupted flesh, they are unworthy of entering God's presence. A naked man also is a completely vulnerable man, one who cannot protect himself from God's judgment for sin, nor defend himself in God's courtroom, and because of his destitute condition, is estranged from the Lord's holy presence, so that without God clothing sinners in his own righteousness, they will be found unfit for entering into his own celestial presence. Isaiah 61.10 I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness, as a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with her jewels. Jesus' parable of the marriage of the king's son reveals to us the importance of a sufficient heavenly garment worthy of God's presence, as no man will be allowed entrance into heaven, possessing only the fleshly garments of his flesh. Consequently, if men are not made new creatures in Christ, replacing the old fleshly nature passed on from Adam, then they shall find themselves unfit for heaven. John chapter 3 verse 3, Jesus answered and said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Like with the priests who served in the Old Testament temple, all flesh and nakedness of man must be covered before having contact with the Lord. And in Exodus chapter 20, verse 26, we read, Neither shalt thou go up by steps into mine altar, that thy nakedness be not discovered thereon. Benson on Exodus 20, 26. Neither shalt thou go up by thy steps upon mine altar. The garments worn in those countries, being perfectly loose, were easily blown aside so as to discover the lower parts of the body. To prevent, therefore, this inconvenience, and that no indecency might be intermixed with the service of God, this precaution was necessary. And for the same reason... The priests were afterward appointed to wear breeches, which were worn by none of the people besides, end quote. What this teaches is that for any to enter the Lord's presence or to perform service for him, God must clothe men with both an attire and a garment sufficient to cover their flesh, since no flesh of any kind shall be allowed entrance into God's holy kingdom. In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50, we read, Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, 
neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. So also, 1 Corinthians 1.29, that no flesh should glory in his presence. Understanding God's view of the flesh, we should be able to see that except the Lord impart to men his glory, which is produced through his spirit, then they shall never be worthy of entering his presence, a truth also that shall be willingly received by the humble, but at the same time wholly rejected by the proud. Pride at its core foolishly believes that it needs not change anything to be accepted by God or to gain fellowship with him. To a proud and rebellious man, his strong internal and unchanging confidence is that God should receive him as he is, even if how he is is only fleshly and carnal. Hence for the pretentious, they think they need not to repent for sin simply because they are not themselves unrighteous. Instead, when challenged by the Lord for sin, they deem God's correction itself as sinful. And in Job chapter 40, verse 11, now we read, Cast abroad thy rage of thy wrath, and behold every one that is proud and abase him. Again, the Lord's words to Job, Look on every one that is proud and bring him low, and tread down the wicked in their place. Hide them in the dust together, and bind their faces in secret. Then will I confess unto thee that thine own right hand can save thee. God's power is seen in his ability to abase the proud. What is intriguing is that the Lord brings up Job's lack of power to abase the proud as grounds that Job could never save himself. There must have been something in Job that at least faintly still believed in his own ability to deliver himself teaching us also that just because men are in pain does not mean that they will not continue to trust in their own power to save themselves. Since the pride of man is often such that only as a last resort will it yield to the fact that all salvation belongs to the Lord. Thus, not until all human pride is lost will most be willing to even consider that God's power and not their own can save them. Even as, not until human pride is completely broken, will men begin trusting in the Lord's power and not their own. Barnes on this verse. Cast abroad the rage of thy wrath. That is, as God does. Show that the same effects can be produced by your indignation, which there is in his. God appeals here to the effect of his displeasure in prostrating his foes as one of the evidences of his majesty and glory, and asks Job if he would compare himself with him to imitate him in this and produce similar effects. And behold, everyone that is proud and abase him, that is, look upon such as one and bring him low, or humble him by a look. It is implied here that God could do this, and he appeals to it as proof of his power, end quote. It is worth considering that the Lord reminds Job of his inability to bring the proud low, simply because this was exactly what he was doing with Job. After also Job's trials, he possessed a humility, reverence, and fear of God beyond anything he held previously. Verse 15 now. Behold now, behemoth, 
which I made with thee. He eateth grass as an ox. Man was not made separate from the beasts of the field, but along with them. Attention now is brought to behemoth. Exactly what this animal was is open to conjecture. Some have supposed it to be the hippopotamus, others the elephant. If we had to choose between the two, by the characteristics revealed, the hippo would be the most logical choice. Yet it is quite probable, if we stay strict to the interpretation of Scripture, that neither of the aforementioned animals is behemoth's true identity. Very likely, this great creature is now extinct. What is revealed about it was that it was not carnivorous, could inhabit both water and land, had a huge thirst, no doubt because of its great size and strength. Like with the hippo, its power lay in its loins. And according to verse 19, behemoth was considered the chief of the ways of God. By this it is meant that there was no other creature that could either rival or match its size or strength. Verse 16 now. Lo now, his strength is in his loins, and his force is in the navel of his belly. He moveth his tail like a cedar. The sinews of his stones are wrapped together. Verse 18. His bones are as strong pieces of brass. His bones are like bars of iron. He is the chief of the ways of God. He that made him can make his sword to approach unto him. Surely the mountains bring him forth food, where all the beasts of the field play. He lieth under the shady trees, in the covert of the reed and fens. The shady trees cover him with their shadows. The willows of the brook compass him about. Behold, he drinketh up a river and hasteneth not. He trusteth that he can draw up Jordan into his mouth. He taketh it with his eyes, his nose pierceth through snares. The reason God draws such attention to this mighty beast's strength is to further impress upon Job God's own strength. All this is meant to produce humility so that Job might consider the vastness of the power of the one he so foolishly had contended against. Hence, if men would never consider wrestling with a creature such as behemoth with the hope of winning, why would they imagine they could successfully strive against God and be successful? Verse 1 now of chapter 41. Canst thou draw out Leviathan with a hook, or his tongue with a cord, which thou lettest down? Canst thou put a hook into his nose, or bore his jaw through with a thorn? Will he make many supplications unto thee? Will he speak soft words unto thee? Will he make a covenant with thee? Wilt thou take him for a servant forever? Wilt thou play with him as with a bird? Or wilt thou bind him for thy maidens? Shall the companions make a banquet of him? Shall they part him among the merchants? Canst thou fill his skin with barb irons or his head with fish spears? Ellicott in this verse. Leviathan. There can be little doubt that by this is meant the crocodile or alligator. Whatever may be the true meaning of behemoth. End quote. The Lord now asked Job, if he could tame such a ferocious creature as Leviathan, wilt thou play with him as with a bird? Or wilt thou bind him for thy maidens? Power is always directly related to being able to produce submission. 
This is true of God with man and man with certain beasts of the field. Yet when men lack sufficient power to either influence the weather, subdue the proud, or reign over certain of God's creatures, it should prove to them that they are not gods nor equal with God in any manner. Pride also can so inflate a man that he loses all real touch with the reality. To then be reminded of his inability is purpose to bring back some sensibility to his true strength. Until then, Job could subdue and domesticate fierce creatures in the earth. He should not think himself as equal to the Lord. Sinners also frequently manifest characteristics of megalomania, whereby grandiose thoughts of themselves tempt them to foolishly believe that they are at least minimally co-equal with God in wisdom and strength. For none will resist God's will unless they first think themselves strong enough to not do God's will in their life. Hence, whenever men buck the truth, they believe themselves sufficiently strong enough to not have to submit to it. 1 Corinthians 3.18 Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you seemeth to be wise in this world, let him become a fool that he may be wise. Matthew Henry on this verse. To have a high opinion of our own wisdom is but to flatter ourselves, and self-flattery is the next step to self-deceit. The wisdom that worldly men esteem is foolishness with God. How justly does he despise, and how easily can he baffle and confound it. The thoughts of the wisest men in the world have vanity, weakness, and folly in them. All this should teach us to be humble and to make us willing to be taught of God so as to not be led away by pretenses to human wisdom and skill from the simple truths revealed by Christ, end quote. Barnes also on this verse. The fact also is that men ultimately have no real power in the earth, and the sooner they realize this, the sooner they will humble themselves to the Lord's own power and authority. Revelation 19.1 reads, And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven saying, Alleluia, salvation, glory, and honor, and power unto the Lord our God. It is not man who can save himself, as all true redemption, deliverance, and salvation in this world belongs to God. Hence no man should think highly of himself simply because the redemption of the world and the misery it lies in can only be reversed through divine power. In short, the redemption of the world belongs to God and should be ascribed to him, end quote. And in Job chapter 41, verse 8, now we read, Lay thine hand upon him. Remember the battle, do no more. Behold, the hope of him is in vain. Shall not one be cast down even at the sight of him? In respect to Leviathan, the Lord then informs Job that if he contended with him, he would experientially learn to never do it again. Job 41.8, the NIV of this verse, If you lay a hand on it, you will remember the struggle and never do it again. And the NLT, If you lay a hand on it, you will certainly remember the battle that follows. You won't try that again. The hope of the Lord was also that the lesson Job learned by striving against God's will for his life would likewise not be repeated again. Verse 9 now, the NIV. 
Any hope of subduing it is false. The mere sight of it is overpowering. And now verse 10. None is so fierce that dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand before me? The ferocity of the crocodile is so great that none dare stir him up. If this was true of the croc, should it not be more true with God? There are so many creatures in this world, including the hippo, the elephant, the crocodile, the lion, the tiger, and even the North American grizzly, that men have the natural sense not to stir up and disturb, lest the creature's great power and strength be exerted towards them. Yet it is astounding how seldom this same fear is attributed to God, so that where men are rightly afraid of the fierceness of so many of the earth's creatures, stunningly, most share not the same fear of the Lord. This is evidenced by the casualness in which they break God's laws and lightly esteem His commands. Divine wisdom should also teach us that just as it is foolish to stir up the anger of creatures like the crocodile, how much more foolish is it to stir up God's anger? Verse 11 now. Who hath prevented me that I should repay him? Whatsoever is under the whole heaven is mine. Benson on this verse. The apostle quotes this sentiment for the silencing of all flesh in God's presence. This is from Romans eleven thirty-five. Who hath first given to him, and it shall be recompensed to him again. For of him, and through him, and to him are all things. As God doth not inflict upon us the evils we have deserved, so he doth bestow upon us the favors we have not deserved. Having said, and largely proved, that man could not contend with God in power, he now adds that he cannot contend with him in or with respect to justice. Because God oweth him nothing, nor is any way obliged to him, which having briefly hinted to prevent an objection, he returns to his former argument, the description of Leviathan, end quote. Verse 12 now. I will not conceal his parts, nor his power, nor his comely proportion. The Lord now reveals to Job that he will even further reveal the details of Leviathan's strength and his glory. By Job considering the might of such a creature as this, he may also see his own fragility and human weakness. Barnes on this verse, I will not conceal his parts, this is the commencement of a more particular description of the animal that had been given before. In the previous part of the chapter, the remarks are general, speaking of it merely as one of great power and not to be taken by any of the ordinary methods. A description follows of the various parts of the animal, all tending to confirm this general impression and to fill the hearer with the deep conviction of his formidable character. The words rendered, I will not conceal, mean, I will not be silent. That is, he would speak of them. The description which follows of the parts of the animal refers particularly to his mouth, his teeth, his scales, his eyelids, his nostrils, his neck, and his heart. Nor his comely proportion. The crocodile is not an object of beauty, and the animal described here is not spoken of as one of beauty but as one of great power and fierceness. The phrase used here means properly the grace of his armature 
or the beauty of his armor. It does not refer to the beauty of the animal as such, but to the armor or defense which it had. Though there might be no beauty in an animal like the one here described, yet there might be a grace or fitness in its means of defense, which could not fail to attract attention, end quote. Verse 13 now. Who can discover the face of his garment? Or who can come to him with his double bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? His teeth are terrible round about. His scales are his pride, shut up together as with a closed seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They stick together and they cannot be sundered. By his kneesings a light does shine, and his eyes are like the eyelids of the morning. Out of his mouth go burning lamps, and sparks of fire leap out. Out of his nostrils go a smoke, as out of a seething pot or cauldron. His breath kindleth coals, and a flame goeth out of his mouth. In his neck remaineth strength, and sorrow is turned into joy before him. The flakes of his flesh are joined together. They are firm in themselves. They cannot be moved. His heart is as firm as a stone, yea, as hard as a piece of neither millstone. When he raiseth up himself, the mighty are afraid. By reason of breakings, they purify themselves. The sword of him that layeth at him cannot hold, the spear, the dart, nor the harbogen. He esteemeth iron, as straw, and brass, as rotten wood. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones are turned, uh, excuse me, sling stones are turned with him into stubble. Darts are counted as stubble. He laugheth at the shaking of his spear. Sharp stones are under him. He spreadeth sharp, pointed things upon the mire. He maketh it deep to boil like a pot. He maketh the sea like a pot of ointment. He maketh the path to shine after him. One would think the deep to be hoary. The characteristics of the crocodile brought to Job's attention are his terrible teeth, the compactness and density of his mighty scales, his eyes, his nostrils, mouth, and breath, the great strength of his neck, as well as the hardness of his heart. Such defenses also does the crocodile possess that neither the spear, arrow, or dart can penetrate his rough outer exterior. In respect to the creature's movements, the Lord reminds Job that especially when subduing his prey, he makes the deep to boil like a pot. Hence, through his speed and rapid movement, the water around him foams, frosts, and boils, like when soup is under intense heat. By then the crocodile's swiftness and its renowned death roll, victims have life sucked out from them. Verse 33 now, Upon earth there is not his like, who is made without fear. He beholdeth all things. He is a king over all the children of pride. Notwithstanding the characteristics of Leviathan and the extensive time spent to reveal its ferocity, there are two verses singularly important in this chapter. The first verse is, None is so fierce that dare stir him up. Who then is able to stand before me? That was verse 10. And now the second is, 
comparing God's strength to the Leviathan. He beholdeth all high things. He is a king over all the children of pride. Barnes on this verse. Who then is able to stand before me? The meaning of this is plain. It is, if one of my creatures is so formidable that men dare not attack it, how can he contend with a great creator? This may perhaps be designed as a reproof of Job. He had expressed a desire to carry his cause before God and to urge argument before him in vindication of himself. God here shows him how hopeless must be a contest with the Almighty. Man trembles and is disarmed of his courage by even the sight of one of the creatures of God. Overpowered with fear, he retires from the contemplated contest and flees away. How then could he presume to contend with God? What hope could he have in a contest with him? End quote. All of God's creation, including each of his creatures, reveals characteristics of the Lord's glory. Though many may not see the reason for creatures such as the crocodile, its beauty lies in its great strength and fearlessness. And like with God, it has no equal, nor fears anything in creation. The crocodile is thus king in his domain, even as God is even more greatly in his. And in Job 41, 33, we close with uh, the NIV of this verse, Nothing on earth is its equal, a creature without fear. Amen.